Welcome to Disruption Blueprint with Shannon Spotswood from RFG Advisory. In this podcast, we help advisors grow their net worth, build their businesses, and maximize their independence. We've built an award-winning platform with innovative technology, comprehensive service, and a team of individuals who are experts in their field to serve advisors. Join us for this journey where we explore everything that has to do with running an independent advisor practice as we bring together successful advisors, industry experts, and innovative minds who are on the bleeding edge to challenge the status quo, foster new ideas, and create a path for advisors to unleash their growth potential. Now, on to the show. Disruption Blueprint was previously known as War Room Huddle. Please continue to enjoy this content as you build your practice for the future. Welcome to War Room Huddle. Today, we're going to spend some time digging into a topic that is really on the top of a lot of advisors' minds, as the average age of an advisor in our industry is just north of 60, and that is succession planning. And we're going to frame it up a little differently today. You know, there is a lot of bankers out there who we really love and we respect doing podcasts, doing webinars, hosting conferences that are really focused on the succession plan for the advisor with a practice 200 million, 500 million, north of a billion. Those are obviously very attractive uh, sized practices in which to structure a succession plan around. By, by attractive, to be clear, the bankers can earn a lot of fees. Uh, that's, 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 you know. they're, okay. 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 Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, so we're going to focus on the segment of the market that is really practice size between 50 million and call it 300 million. So joined today in War Room Huddle by Rick Waddell, Chief Investment Officer at RFG Advisory. Welcome. Thanks, Shannon. And Rick is uniquely qualified to have this conversation. So you all know him as the Chief Investment Officer at RFG, responsible for managing our in-house investment strategies, Bluemont. But prior to joining us on our mission to build the RA of the future, Rick was in the seat at Bain Capital for 12 years, where he played an instrumental role in really helping you know, the, the financing packages, designing deal terms, negotiating term sheets, and really thinking creatively around how to structure buyouts. So we come at this with, I think, a really unique perspective, and you've got a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge to drop this morning. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate and every that. Every morning. Oh, thank you so much, Shannon. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so in your in your words, frame us up. What is the practice profile that we are talking about that this is really a relevant conversation for? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think about your typical sort of 50 to $200 million advisor, they tend to be what I will call sole proprietors, right? So this is not an advisor team. Um, if it is an advisor team, it may be that in name only, there is normally one sort of figurehead and or rainmaker that is kind of making all of the day-to-day of this stuff work. Um, and I kind of like to, to, you know, maybe frame it up as the, you know, hit by a bus, uh, you know, test, right? So like, if that sole proprietor were hit by a bus tomorrow, the business would just sort of disappear, right? right? And that is, that is different because that is when you think about selling something like that or creating the succession plan for somebody like that, 
it is different than uh, you know if you're in let's say a partnership or you know you're a you're a 500 million dollar practice and there are six advisors and so one of them gets hit by a truck tomorrow and the rest of the advisors in the practice just sort of pick up you know as if there was nothing you know no hole left other than the obvious emotional one. Um, so like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people that are in this industry, you know, they're in the, they're independent or they're on the independent side or they're running their own practice. They're running their own book. They're living a good living. They're making a good stream of cash flow. You know, they've got somewhere between 50 to $150 million in assets. Maybe they have an admin, maybe they have a couple of admin. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's usually that one individual that is the key to making everything work. They are the advisor. Right. And and so let's, you know, start this conversation really tackling the misconceptions. So the misconceptions associated with I'm selling my practice, I need to find a successor. Absolutely. Uh and there are a lot. <laughs> um you know, I, I think, and look, these are going to be some dirty little secrets, and there are going to be a lot of people that maybe don't want to hear the truth, but we're just going to speak the truth. So that's okay. Um, the first is this misconception that I can continue to run my practice indefinitely into the future and just own the cash flow associated with it, and that'll be fine. You know, I never need to move off into the sunset. Um, and here's the the couple of problems with that. One, you're kind of doing your clients a disservice at the end of the day because uh, at some point you are going to be checked out, right? Like we all talk about, you know, our clients' end of life plans. Like at some point you're going to check out as well. And your clients want that handoff to happen in a controlled fashion, not in an uncontrolled right. fashion. They right? don't want to be in crisis. They don't want to be in crisis because you're in crisis. Uh, you know, they, they want to know that you have handed something off. And then the second part of that that's really related, tangentially related, but it is a well-known industry fact that a lot of people don't like to talk about that as advisors age, the growth rate of their book slows down. Um, and it's not because, you know, I just don't have the hustle in my step that I used to. It's because nobody wants to refer someone to an advisor that is older than they are or that, to an advisor that's in their you know 60s 70s you know mid 70s that referral stream just starts to dry up because the that your clients know that you're eventually going to retire like they know this you and I have seen this time and time again with retiring advisors where there's a younger advisor that steps in to acquire the practice and all of a sudden assets start to come out of the woodwork, referrals start to come out of the woodwork and commentary from the clients is like, oh, thank goodness. Right. I've been waiting on this announcement for however long. I've been worried about what your succession plan was and what that handoff was going to look like. And in reality, clients are not going to bring you new assets and they're not going to refer business to you if they're worried about what the, your next step is. That's not really relevant if you're in your 50s or in your 40s, but when you start to get into your 60s and 70s, it becomes very relevant very quickly. Well, and what's interesting about that and what is, you know, to some degree, the elephant in the room is that the advisor is having conversations with their clients about planning for retirement. So you're having the conversation directly with the client about retirement, and yet you haven't addressed your own. That's exactly right. And so you're just kind of setting yourself up for being unreferable. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
All right, so I want to tick through. Wait, we we have other misconceptions. Oh, keep we going. have other okay, misconceptions. Okay. Run your practice indefinitely in the future. There is some reality around your referability with regards to the age. Misconception uh, three. Misconception three um, is this notion of margin uh, and yes. valuation, right? So um, sometimes I'm glad you that up. these uh, you know sole proprietor practices really pride themselves on running a practice that has almost no overhead, right? Like they're not investing in, you know, marketing dollars. They're not investing in talent. operational support, talent, whatever it might be. Talent, tech, ops. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, you know, they they look at it as like, well, you know, I make, you know, $100,000 a year in top line and I'm taking home $80,000 of that. And isn't that great because my margins in my business are just so incredibly high. And here's where the reality sets in and something that I think we're going to talk about or I hope we talk about a lot in the podcast is when you sell your book to someone else, right? And, and you are in this position of I'm a sole proprietor. I'm selling my book. I'm transitioning away. It's not to somebody that I necessarily brought up behind me as my protege or succession plan in the industry. I, I am transferring these clients to another advisor. This other advisor has their own way of doing business, right? Like they've already got their established processes and procedures. They've already got an admin team, a support team. They know what they want to do on the asset management side. They know what their overhead structure looks like, right? And it's not yours. So just because, you know, you might be running at an 80% margin business, most people in the industry, particularly those that are younger and still growing, are running at more like a 50% margin. Margin, they're going to value your practice based on what their margins are, not based on what yours is, which is a different way of saying that when you're selling a book, right? Like if you're, if you're a sole proprietor and you haven't spent the time to develop, you know, the, the partnership model, if you're just selling off your clients, you are more likely to be valued at a revenue multiple as opposed to an earnings multiple. Any more? Any more um, what else am I missing, Shannon? What else am I missing? We'll probably we'll we'll probably bump into it, but I think okay. that 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 that's a, a good place to start. I want to tick through some questions that we get asked a lot. Um, number one, all right, I'm thinking, I'm hearing you. I need to get focused on what is my succession plan. Do I hire a banker? Knee-jerk reaction, do I go out and hire a banker? No, do not go out and hire a banker if you are less than $150 million in size because, let's be real, uh, and with all due respect to the bankers that are out there, what you are more likely to run into at that scale is a business broker, uh, not a banker. Um, it is not going to be super well marketed. And let's face it, there are a lot of individuals out there that are interested in acquiring retiring advisors' books. Like, it is not hard to find acquirers. Um, fit is very important, right? Like, you know, when you go to hire a banker, you're normally looking, you're bringing a banker to the table in part to help you structure the transaction, but also in part to just make sure that there's, you know, 15, 20 people that show up at the auction. Um, in this case, there are a lot of advisors that are out there that are willing to do this. Financing is not that hard to obtain, uh, you know, particularly if you're going to go to an established advisor, which what's something I think we're going to talk about in a little bit. 
Um, you know, it's, it is, don't, don't hire a banker, right? Like it's, it's not worth your time and effort. Do hire a lawyer. Uh, a lawyer is a good idea. Uh, when you get to the point where you want to draft all this up and document it, lawyer is a great idea. Banker, less so. Let's keep, I'm going to come back, but I want to stay since we, you brought up legal counsel. Okay. Okay. Yes, hire a lawyer, but should that lawyer be your brother-in-law, no. your neighbor? No, 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 no. Now is not the time to have your sister's brother's, you know, cousin, etc., who does real estate law to take a look at, uh, you know, whatever transaction you are pulling up. Um, you want somebody who has done this type of transaction before. And when I say this type of transaction, I mean documentation for a financial advisor selling their clients to another financial advisor. Um, you know, lawyers are funny. I love lawyers. Uh, but if you're an accountant, you focus on accounting. If you're a you know financial advisor, you focus on investments or planning. financial planning, whatever that might be. Um, if you're, you know, a lawyer, you focus on legal, right? Risk. Uh, risk. <laughs> um, and it's very important for lawyers in the space to be familiar with what is standard in the space and what is not, right? So, you know, for example, if you've never had an accountant that's dealt with a transaction in this space, they may not realize that, look, this is all goodwill, so it's all going to be tax at capital gains rates. There is no cost basis really associated with your practice, um, and so they may get hung up on, you know, is it an asset sale or is it an equity purchase or this and that and the other, uh, when in the reality, um, it doesn't really matter that much in our industry. Um, you know, when we think about, you know, attorneys, you might get hung up on the same type of thing if they're not familiar with what kind of industry standard looks like. So God, no, do not use your brother-in-law uh, for this particular transaction. It's it's too important. And generally, family members not great to do business with anyway. So anyway. I'm going to underline that really quickly. With the deals that we have basically, and and for the most part, every deal is going to almost fail before it gets over the finish line. Like these are emotional experiences and it will be the only time you sell your practice. Mm -hmm. for, for most of you, it'll be the only time you sell your practice. So there's an added element of emotion attached to that. But where the deals have been at the fish, finish line and it's a great, you know, win, win, win for all par parties involved and it gets on the ropes, it's because of the lawyers. So <laughs> choose that counsel um, wisely. Are you an advisor looking to make the move to independence? RFG Advisory is an innovator in the wealth management industry with a winning culture and a fully integrated tech platform designed to help advisors take their practice to the next level. Let us get to know you at rfgadvisory.com. Okay, this one I feel a little bit like, let me just jump into the crocodile-filled waters because I have a sense as to how you're going to answer this question, which is, do I need evaluation? And before you answer, I want to say, remember, for the purposes of this, uh, this conversation here in War Room Huddle, we're really focused on advisors who are $50 million to say $300 million. Do I need a formalized valuation? No, you do not. Um, look, the acquirer 
is going to go through your book, right, is going to want to know something about your clients, right? So if you have a problem in your client base, which, by the way, is likely to accelerate the more you age, it is, it is one of those things, you know, as advisors get older, their client base tends to age kind of right along with them, particularly once you start to hit that point where you're not adding a whole lot of 40-year-olds to the pipeline right like if you know if you reach that age where you're not getting the referrals you're not getting fresh business in then your your book is slowly growing older with you that may start to present a little bit of a problem and that may be a point where uh you know an acquirer says oh geez i'm not necessarily sure i want to do this the reality of the situation though is that most acquirers are acquiring your revenue stream. They are planning to integrate it into their practice, right? You know, the time to develop, you know, your protege and, you know, bring along that new advisor in the industry that just got his, you know, CFP or her CFP and maybe, you know, just graduated from the local business school and is going to be my apprentice. Like that time was... 10 years ago, right? Like you're, you know, you're you're at the stage now where that ship has sailed, right? If I'm going to really do this and I'm going to do it successfully and I'm going to do it in a way that my clients want to see, then I'm going to be selling my book of business, my client relationships to an established advisor that is not going to care as much about how I did business. They're going to focus on the way that they do business, right? And because of that, you're going to get valued on on revenue and I'm just going to tell you it's roughly two and a half to three times trailing 12-month revenue, right? It is That is the multiple that is pretty standard in the industry. You might see a little bit above that. You might see a little bit below that, but it is generally right around that range, right, is, is where the multiples are in the industry. And in a weird way, it's up for you. And we'll talk about this as we talk about protege and everything else like that. You know, you're looking at me on the other side of this podcast right now and saying, well, what do you mean? You know, they're not going to care about the way I do business. In a weird way, it's going to be up to you as the seller to go out and find an acquirer that you like and agree with, right? Like that you, you know, we see this all the time and, and talk about fit of like, you know, and once you find that fit, um, and we'll talk about this some more in a little bit, but once you find that fit, you know, it's very important to just know that, like, I don't need to go out and pay somebody to get a valuation. I don't need to pay somebody to do this, that, and the other. You know, whether it's 2.75 times or three times, you know, trailing revenue. If that fit is there, uh, you know, the, then the multiple will be appropriate and it'll be accretive for everybody. Right. I love uh, the distinction that you made. You use the word protege. Protege versus acquirer. And, and thinking about as you enter into this process of, I need a succession plan, it's the right thing to do for my personal balance sheet. It's the right thing to do for my clients. It is, it is a necessary part of the business. What is the difference between my protege and an acquirer? Right. Um, so there tends to be a little bit of this notion in the industry, right? And I think it's a very noble narrative, right? Of like, I'm bringing up the younger generation of advisors and I've hired somebody that, you know, is just like a young me and I'm going to train them in the industry. 
Um, and you know, they're going to know my clients because I introduced them all and they're going to do business just like I am. And then, you know, someday like, you know, I'm going to ride off into the sunset and, you know, I'm going to hand off all my clients to that individual. And that individual is going to be the one that basically acquires the practice. Okay. There are two problems with this strategy. The first is it takes time a very long time to gradually grow that person into the advisor that you want them to be, right? And there tend to be personality clashes along the way, right? Like, you know, there's a younger generation of leadership. There's an older generation of leadership. So-and-so wants to invest more in marketing. So-and-so doesn't. Like, whatever it might be, right? There tend to be clashes along the way. And so, like, if you've identified this person as your succession plan uh, and, you know, you get three years into it and you guys have a fight about something or this and that and the other, then you're restarting the clock all over again, and so if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 40s and 50s, you can think about like, okay, well, if that's my vision for the way that I want my firm to be built, then you better go out and hire a pack of junior advisors right now to be that succession plan when you actually want to retire. And if you're in your 60s and 70s, I'm just going to tell you it's too late, right? Like that window has closed. Um, it is time to go out and find an acquirer. Now, what does an acquirer look like? An acquirer looks like an established advisor that has their own book of business, which normally should be about your size or larger, right? So it doesn't, from a financing standpoint, it's very hard for that $20 million gung-ho advisor to pull together the financing uh, to buy a $100 million practice. It's not impossible uh, because I've seen crazier things, uh, but it's way, 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 way easier if we're talking about a $70 million advisor acquiring another $70 million advisor's practice or something else like that. Those deals are much, much easier to do, right? From a structuring standpoint, from, a, from just a, a, a coherent standpoint. But you need to understand as the seller in those transactions that this is an individual that is buying a book, right? And when they're buying a book, they're looking at it not as like, oh, these are great client relationships and I want to bring those client relationships in and run them the way I run my existing practice, right? So you don't get to tell them when they're buying your book how you think the train should run, right? Like they already have how the train should run. It's your job to find one of these people that has a train schedule that you like, right? Like... That's that's the whole goal, right? Like you want to find an advisor that does business in a way that you like, that you are comfortable passing your clients on to. Your job is not to tell the acquirer that they're doing their business wrong, right? Which brings us to that notion of fit. Yes. Like how, what are the, you know, what is the, the, the matrix of deciding fit? Besides just like we jihad. Like, I like you, we've got, you know, a connection. So there's high service, low service practices. There's what does the practice focus on? Like, is your practice focused on financial planning or is your practice focused on investment management and, you know, and selection? Is your practice high touch, right? So, you know, if, if you're used to talking to your clients 
four or five times a year because you have you know fewer households and much larger AUM per household, then probably not a great idea to sell to somebody that's like, nope, like I'm more of a churn and burn operation where like, you know, I'm talking to each one of my clients once a year, right? Or, and you know, that might be just a 30 minute phone call to check in on whatever it might be. So you want that fit and feel to look generally like what your clients look like. There may be some values that you want to share, right? So some people are, you know, very conservative, right? And you may want to go find a very conservative advisor. Some people are super ESG focused or whatever it might be. They want to go find an advisor that looks like that, right? So that there's a little bit of the like, here's who I've identified my success, you know, my practice to go on to. And it's, and it's in a weird way, it's your job as the seller to identify that buyer that fits and feels. There are a lot of people that are out there that are willing to buy practices, right? Like tons of folks that are out there. You need to, you know, just get to know the folks in your area and identify who might be that nice plan. Do they have to be a perfect fit? No, they do not have to be a perfect fit. Uh, so, you know, for example, they need to be a perfect fit on like the one or two ways that you define your practice, right? So like, if you are a planning practice first, right, um, and you go and try and sell to somebody who's like, we don't do financial planning, that's probably a problem, right? Um, but if you're like, ah, you know, on the investment management side, I use predominantly individual name, you know, equities, right? And I'm selling to somebody who uses more, you know, ETFs and mutual funds, like, that may not be a problem if that's not how you define your practice, right? Like if you don't define your practice by, you know, security selection, then it's not as important. Um, and in fact, you're never going to find the perfect right. match, right? Uh, and it's not your job to tell them that they're doing their practice wrong, right? A, l a little bit of a sidebar, but as you were talking, I was, I was thinking about technology because so often, you know, in these these this this business model where you have a very high margin you've got an 80% margin you have massively underinvested in tech and while i'm not willing to declaratively state that all younger advisors who are sitting in the role of being the acquirer are all high tech but i'm pretty much willing to bet that they're all focused uh, and have tech enabled practices so how does technology factor into determining fit Meaning so oftentimes we hear with with our older advisors that we're structuring, my clients don't like tech. My clients don't use it. They won't check the, it's not important to them. This is not a value. Um, I mean, first off, you never know whether or not your clients value it or not uh, until you actually give it to them and see whether or not they use it or not. And there are a lot of biases that go into that question. Everybody in the country at this point has some type of smart device, right? Tablet, iPhone, whatever it might be. Grandparents connecting with their grandkids. We see this all the time. And it's it's just one of these things. Like, I, I want to be clear. Your clients love you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when, when, when you're 65 your or 75, <laughs> 70 or whatever it is, like, you develop those relationships with clients. And, and like, candidly, like, I have this conversation on the other side of it when we're trying to, you know, when... I, I was I was with a client, I was on the phone with a client, a prospect the other day, who's like demonstrably 
distressed because we've kind of shown them like, uh, you know, performance is awful. Like there's no planning work being done and your advisor has literally moved to the lake, right? Like they don't even have an office in the city anymore. Like they, they live three hours outside the city and like they, they haven't met with you like one-on-one in years, right? Like it's just phone calls. And like the client is looking at me being like, okay, I know all of this is true, but, um, Time out on the floor. Time out on the floor. <laughs> no worries. Where's your sign? Where's my sign? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the advisor literally lives three hours away at the lake. Like he's not coming in. Like there's no one-on-one meetings anymore. And, and you know, the client is looking at the prospect is looking at me and saying all this and being like, yeah, but I've done business with him for 20 years. Right. He knows. Me. And I don't like, I know this is the case. And when this guy retires, like I want to move on and everything else like that, but I'm just hard. It's hard for me to rip that bandaid off. Your clients love you right? Like they are not going to leave you because you don't have technology to offer them. That does not mean that they don't want it, right? right? Like they will be relieved when you go in and and identify, like we see this all the time when you announce a succession plan and like you bring on the like, and this is who's going to be taking over the business. And here's the way that, you know, meet their team and everything else like that it generates buzz and excitement that your clients get excited about it. They're excited that you're retiring and moving on or at least planning for it. They're excited about this new relationship that they've created. And they're excited that you've gone in and actually put in the thought to who should they be working with going forward. The fact that you've given that individual their blessing or your blessing is huge in the client's eyes. I mean, that's such an important point. That might be the like takeaway of all takeaways from this. That's the golden nugget of how much they appreciate you making the hard decisions for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And before I lose it, I just want to circle back to one thing, okay? Back to the acquirer versus protege. The thing to realize about when you're selling your book to an established advisor is their business is, you know, they have the same AUM that you do. They are successful in their own right. They are going to have ideas about how they run the practice going forward. Those ideas aren't necessarily going to always line up with yours. But so long as your values kind of line up about how you're going to treat these clients and what you're actually providing to them, it'll be okay. One more question on just, you know, alignment and fit. What about fees? Do you have to have the same fee structure as the acquirer? Um, you do not. Uh, we have seen uh, in multiple cases, you know, where, you know, maybe there's one advisor that's got a lower fee and, you know, they're moving into a higher fee or whatever that might be. Um, you should be aware that, uh, you know, the advisor may adjust your fee schedule in the future to more conform to theirs. And I've seen that happen in both directions, right? 
I've seen it happen where, uh, you know, you were charging for a third party manager and they're not going to charge for that third party manager because they're not going to use one. And so they're going to lower the client's fee, you know, in that way. Um, I've seen it happen the other direction, right? Where, uh, you know, there's an investment management service or something else like that. And they're, and they're stepping up the fees of the portfolio. That is ultimately the decision of the acquirer, right? Like you are handing off your clients, um, and you know, your clients, uh, you know, uh, your clients will work with the new advisor to determine what's appropriate and what's not. And I think the key point there, as we've seen it from our experience is don't let that be a deal breaker. Mm -mm. Don't let fee parity be a deal breaker. And uh, the, similar to my clients don't want technology. My clients won't pay a higher fee. Those are all, I mean, to some degree misnomers. I agree. I agree. Let's have a choice of what attitude we're going to bring into life. The attitude that we bring into it is up to us. It's worth doing, it's worth freaking rushing. It's in the business world too. It's adaptable and it's transferable. I transfer that over to my business dealings and dealing with my employees, dealing with my partners. If it's worth doing, not only is it worth doing right, but it's worth freaking rushing. The ultimate goal isn't to succeed or fail. The ultimate goal is to give it everything you have for something that's on your heart. What is absolutely 100% true to you that you know for sure that is going to set you up for success and that's going to pull you through the toughest moments of your life? RFG Advisory is getting ready to crush everything like you've never seen before, and we want you to be a part of it. You'll be a part of a special elite group of advisors who will spend two days with veteran Navy SEAL Team 6 hero and founder of Dynamis Alliance, Dom Rosso. With Navy SEAL Team hero and best-selling author of Man in the Arena, Eddie Gallagher. And to cap it all off, sports icon and motivational speaker, Tim Tebow. Morning crush at workouts with the SEALs, bourbon tasting, panel discussions bridging SEAL team training to being a high-performing advisor. Head on over to rfgwc.com to sign up now for the Warrior Advisor Conference 2022 and claim your spot. Okay, let's get technical. This is like your, you know, your, your, your favorite, your sweet spot. Let's talk about deal structure. Okay. So, Deal structure, big picture, and then what should a uh, what should a you know what should you be seeing in a term sheet? Okay, uh, wow, that's two very big questions. Yes. Uh, let's talk deal structure to begin with. Um, in general, with these types of successions for your sort of fifty to one hundred fifty million dollar practice, um, our best our our best results are generally seen with a twelve max eighteen month transition period. Um, you know, this is something where you may want to start to have the conversation with the acquiring advisor earlier than that to just sort of, you know, kick the tires and, you know, like, break, uh, bread. break bread with one another, get to know one another. You're just kind of identifying who that is. But when you start to come to brass tacks and you say, okay, look, you know, now is the time I want to go ahead and start to sell this thing. Typically you're looking for 12 to 18 months. It's can, the client's will dictate that this happens because they love you. But as soon as they're introduced to the advisor that is going to be working with them for the next 
10, 15, 20, 30 years, they're going to want to work with that advisor. It is natural, right? Like, you know, you are the person that is on the way out. They, the advisor, you know, the, the acquiring advisor is the one that's sort of ascendant, if you will. And they're going to want to get to know that person, right? So typically we're targeting about a 12 to 18 month transition period where really you're just kind of helping the clients get to know the new advisor, okay? Um, and, and that's your job. Your job is to really transition those client relationships as successfully as you can. Make sure that, you know, if there are client concerns that those are being addressed, uh, you know, make sure that the clients are happy. Like that's, that's your goal. That's your job during that time period. Um, typically from a structure standpoint, you're going to get, you know, some amount of money up front and then some amount of money at the end of that transition period. And that amount of money at the end of that transition period is, will be what we call at risk. Um, in other words, uh, you know, if you sign up a deal and then none of your clients go to the new advisor, then you may not get that second payment. Uh, and there will be some structuring that goes into, you know, okay, how do we measure that? And, you know, what do those benchmarks look like? And, you know, all of that type of fun stuff. But typically, you know, an acquirer will have uh, some idea of, you know, like, okay, well, we're just going to measure it on revenue, or we're going to measure it on number of households, or we're going to measure it on, you know, whatever it might be. And, and you know, you get your first payment up front, 50 to 60% of the purchase price up front, and then you get your second payment at the end of the, at the end of it based on how successful the transition is. You rattled really quickly as we were opening up about the tax treatment of these deals as it relates to legal counsel. So in terms of deal structure, what should you be looking for there? Uh, in terms of deal structure, it should be capital gains. Um, it it unless you have done something crazy, it is not at all difficult to structure this as capital gains. Um, the th phrases that you want to avoid in a term sheet are anything you know called an earnout payment or a bonus payment or a success payment. Uh, you know, you want to you want to avoid those, but that's one of the reasons to get a lawyer involved and maybe your accountant as well. Um, okay, so just, why? I mean, those are pretty standard terms in a term sheet. Okay. Well, so yes. Let's talk about getting cute with deal structure. All right. Let's let's do talk about getting <laughs> cute with deal structure. Um, the short answer is don't. Right. Like the easiest and. God, I don't know what it is about people that like to really overthink and overcomplicate things, right? But like, if the notion is, hey, I'm selling my practice, it's worth a million dollars, we've agreed to that, I'm going to get $600,000 up front and $400,000 12 months later, so long as 90% of my households, uh, you know, have transferred, Right which would be a pretty standard deal structure, some, something around that, um, then the term sheet should just look like that, right? And we see a lot of people that maybe they're, maybe they're not deal people, maybe they're not, uh, you know, for a lot of people, this is the only deal that they've ever struck. You know, they're not serial acquirers, whatever that might be. I see a lot of people that like to try and get really cute and complicated, right? Like, well, but you're going to get 25% of the incremental revenue associated with, you know, helping me increase the fee of clients. And when I transition into the new cost structure and save money on the blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I'm going to give you an earnout payment based on successful marketing attempt. Like, don't. 
just don't, okay? Because people get so wrapped around the axle on this stuff. And as you're, to your point earlier, the easiest thing to do to blow apart a deal is the legal side mm -hmm. of it, right? And we get stuck arguing about some stupid rep and warranty that's really only going to matter in like 1% of cases. Probably less than. Uh, <laughs> like you, you, you do not want to be that. Like the cleaner and simpler things are the better. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, why do deals get complicated? Why why do we get too cute with our deal structure? And it really is around the mitigation of risk. So talk about negotiating the prenup because that's, I mean, we see that all the time with the acquirer. You know, you start to have these conversations about what does that second bite at the apple look like or what are the terms I want in my prenup? Yes. Um, so let's talk about prenup, but I am going to disagree with you just a little bit. I think term sheets get complicated for two reasons. One is the amount of risk, right? But the second is this desire to get more than my practice is actually worth, right? Ooh, and I like it. You know, um, this this was a joke, uh, you know, and but it's a it's a well known one on the banking deal side that if you give me two things to choose, if I can either choose how much to pay for something, or if I can choose the structure in which that that sum is going to be paid, I will choose structure over amount every single time, and it is true, right? Like, so you see people create these like. Fantastic. It's a 10-year revenue split that declines over time and blah, 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 blah. And all of these things usually ignore the present value of money. Uh, but it sounds great because it's like, yeah, you're getting, you know, instead of getting three times revenue for your practice, you're getting four times revenue for your practice with the potential to get five times revenue for your practice. It's paid out over a 15-year period at ordinary income rates, but like that headline number of what the check is so worth sexy. is just so sexy. Your practice is worth three times, two and a half to three times revenue at capital gains tax rates. That's what it's worth. Okay, well, let's just establish that. Um, on the prenup. <laughs> so if you're not ready to sell, don't sell. Right? Like if you are not ready to go ahead and say, yep, I want to begin the 12 to 18 month process of retiring and introducing my clients to their new advisor and having that conversation about like, this is your new advisor now or your new team now or whatever it is. And on a go forward basis, you know, I'm going to be around if you have any questions, but like, here's the new contact info. If you are not ready to have that conversations with your clients, don't sell your book. Okay. Because if you are ready to have that conversation, then the prenup kind of doesn't matter as much, right? Like we're not forming an operating partnership here that's designed to last through, you know, the, you know, in the context of marriage, we're not getting married. In fact, we're agreeing <laughs> that I'm going to be done with you in 12 to 18 months, right? Like, so I don't need to negotiate what a breakup looks like. The breakup is, I'm 100% focused on trying to get my clients to go work with this new advisor, which we will love you for, right? And then I am going to exit peacefully stage left, right? And that's where, like, 
you know, we haven't really talked about it. I know you want to talk about the emotion. We're coming to that. Okay. 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 Yeah. Because I want to stay a few more time, a few more things on deal structure term sheet. One, do I have to accept his seller note? No, not in today's interest rate environment. You do not have to accept a seller note. Um, seller notes do a couple of things. Um, it enables some flexibility uh, between you and the acquirer um, because you can kind of make whatever that seller note look like, you know, kind of whatever you want it to look like. Uh, and so, you know, as opposed to a lump sum payment or something else like that, you know, you're kind of cutting your own cloth. And we come back to this, you know, I see term sheets get really complicated when it's like, yeah, there's going to be an eight-year seller note at a 3% interest rate. And that's the way I was able to get to, you know, getting three and a half or four times value for my practice or whatever it might be. And keep in mind that the interest on a seller note is actually taxable at ordinary income rates. And, even if there's no interest on the seller note, the IRS imputes an interest rate on a seller note. Like it's, you can do it. It's, it's a creative way, um, you know, to potentially drive structure. Uh, but a cleaner structure is going to be the acquirer just comes up with cash, and if the acquirer is roughly your size and they are paying you about three times revenue for your practice, they really shouldn't have a problem getting that deal 100% financed, at least in today's environment. Like, it shouldn't be that hard for them to do. And that way, you don't have to take on any credit risk associated with the seller, right? Like, you're getting your two payments, and then at the end of the day, if the seller, you know, does something stupid with their practice or something else like that, you're not on the hook for it. So do you have to accept one? Absolutely not. Would I encourage you to accept one? Absolutely not, because that's where structures get funky. Uh, but if you want to get creative about deal structure, then um, you can. Um, the, the times that we most frequently see seller notes employed are in the protege model, actually, right. because... Yeah. Those protégés, if they're paying you three times the revenue of the practice, they normally don't have their own book to be able to leverage, to be able to borrow the money to make the acquisition financing they're work. They're your servicing advisor on your practice. Exactly. Uh, and so the financing gets really tricky, and so you kind of have to take back seller paper. Okay, so quick little sidebar, and this is for the acquirers. I'm in a partnership, so two young advisors, I'm in a partnership. We're, you know, 70 million, 100 million, whatever we are. Mm -hmm. Should we finance this individually on our personal balance sheet or should we finance this acquisition, this succession plan through the company's operating agreement and through the company's balance sheet? Woo. Um, if you finance it through the company, the bank is going to want a personal guarantee anyway. Um, I think it's cleaner to just put it on the company's balance sheet. If the company is the one buying the money and the clients are rolling into the company and we're going to be splitting, you know, the revenues, uh, you know, associated with this, I think it's cleaner to just put it on the company's balance sheets. Um, borrowing it personally, uh, you know, it's going to appear on your own personal credit statement, this and that and the other. And, and either way, the bank's going to get you for a personal right. guarantee. If you're, if you default on it one way or another, the bank's going to find you. Uh, so, you know, I would, I would keep it on the side of the company. I think it's cleaner that way. Yep. 
Um, anything that you want to touch on in terms of other, you know, either boogeymen in the term sheet, anything around minority rights? I mean, I think we've hit that point really hard on keep it simple, stupid. Um, yeah, but is there anything else as you've looked at these term sheets, as we've structured these term sheets that that we should touch on? I think the cleaner that you can make it, the simpler it is. And in these deal structures where you are selling to an acquirer, right? Like there really shouldn't be that much at the end of the day to argue over. You are not, and I, I you know, we'll talk about this. We're going to get to emotions. I yeah, know we're going to get coming. to emotions. But when you've reached this stage, you really need to be of the mindset that when I get that first check that I am receiving, um, I, my job going forward is not to provide financial advice to my clients. I mean, it is, but it's not to make all the trains run on time and decide what marketing event we're going to do and do all of the things that I've done up to this point, right? My job for the next 12 to 18 months is to introduce my clients to the new advisor that will be taking over my practice and help that transition happen as seamlessly as possible. Educating the advisor on what those clients' needs are, introducing the two of them in that conversation where there's an introduction, making sure that like all the relevant points come out. Like you're introducing this advisor to your family in a way, right? Like, and you want to make sure that that transition goes smoothly. So it's not really like, you know, it's, it's, I know it sounds weird, but like when you get that initial upfront payment and you've inked the deal and you've said, yep, this is what's happening then you want to be of that mindset of like, yep, for the next 12 to 18 months, like my job is to, is to transition my clients to the new advisor. And public service announcement, uh, please really take that to heart because the, the biggest disservice that you can do to the acquirer is to sabotage them in the communications with your client, whether it's around, well, you know, the investment management's going to change. I wouldn't do it that way, but seems like that's how they do it right. or around the fee discussion or around the service model, like really put all of that, that ego, that instinct, that, you know, just desire to get that one last little subtle jab in there. Like all of that needs to be put by the wayside because you really are number one cheerleader for the succession plan that you have structured. That's that's exactly right. Um, and by the way, for the acquirers out there that are potentially listening to this and, and you know, thinking about what should go in a term sheet, um, this is why that success metric uh, at the end is so very important uh, for that second payment. Uh, is to help ensure that everybody's motivated and on the same page as to what does success look like. Um, and for the purposes of one of these transactions, success looks like at the end of 12 to 18 months, all of your clients have agreed to work with the new advisor. That is it. And that is all to borrow, you know, Bobby's famous <laughs> check phrase, you know, catchphrase. Yeah. Uh, you know, like that is success. That is how we are defining success. And let's not confuse anything else with success. You want the relationships to transfer, which is why you did all the work on the front end to identify an advisor that you would feel comfortable working with your clients on a go forward basis, right? Like if you don't feel comfortable with them, 
then whatever. And one other bugaboo in term sheets that I will just mention is, and it's up for debate, the notion of what you might get paid during the transition period really depends on how much are you getting up front and how much are you saving for that last payment, okay? So if you're going to take most of your capital off the table up front, which is what I encourage you to do because it de-risks the transition, you're going to get paid nothing or maybe just a little bit for the 12 to 18 months while you transition your clients. You're going to be working for the transition, working for that transition payment, okay? If you take a much smaller payment up front, say, I want to transition the book and then we'll get paid, um, then you can expect to maybe get paid a little bit more over the course of the transaction. Think of it as salary. Think of it as salary. Yep. Um, all right. Quickly before we go to emotion, timing. What should I expect as I go from listening to this podcast to I'm going to close a deal? What's you're, the timing of this? You're going to close a deal. Okay. First, we have to figure out who are you going to close a deal with? Um, and that is a very intricate dating, uh, you know, scenario. You got to identify, you know, who that might be, where are they located? You know, what is that value fit? You have to approach them and say, Hey, you know, like I'm thinking about retiring. Would you be interested in acquiring my practice, kicking off that conversation? Don't be shy about having that conversation because a lot of the advisors that are out there that are in their forties and fifties, uh, you know, are interested um, guy, you know, folks, you need to find somebody out there that is younger than you. Uh, I, I forgot to mention this. Like when you're, you know, like this is not just five years. Younger. Yeah, no, 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 no. Like your advisor, your clients do not want to be handed off to somebody that's like, oh my Lord, we're just going to go through another handoff five years from now. Like that's dumb. Uh, you want to, you want to hand off your book of business to someone that is, you know, that, that will, stay in the business longer than the lives of most of your clients, right? Like your clients don't want to transition twice if they can avoid it. Um, so going out there and finding that, you know, uh, that that acquirer is actually the, the longest part of the process. Having those conversations, talking about what it could look like, what it might look like, you know, how it should work, et cetera, are, are you know, a very nebulous. Uh, and what we tend to recommend is, you know what? Like, uh, I'm going to sign the way that it should look is I'm going to sign this deal. Um, you guys are going to take over all responsibility. The acquirer is going to take over all responsibility for the actual management of these clients going forward. So at reviews, administrative work, paperwork, everything else like that, that gets taken off your plate and integrated into the acquirer's practice. And really, it just becomes up to you to say, look, I don't really, you know, if I'm getting administrative support, I'm getting it from one of the acquirer's people. Um, and, you know, I'm just rolling forward as, you know, it is my job to introduce people to the new, to their new advisor. Um, which is why I think it's so helpful, given the nebulous nature of identifying that 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 successor, that successor, that acquirer, that you really have spent some time thinking through your matrix. Like you know, this is the valuation range that I expect. This is how the deal is going to be structured. This is what are the must-haves for me in terms of fit. Like spend some time before you start having those conversations, so that you can very quickly weed 
you know, people that you're talking to out of the process. I agree. I completely agree. Um, but that is the process that takes the most time. And it's sort of like, you know, asking somebody, you know, how long does it take to find, you know, whoever you're going to marry, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know, it can take a while, right? <laughs> like it can happen very quickly or it can take a while. Uh, you know, you've got to get out there and find that right person, but you're not going to find them if you're not looking. Uh, this is, this is one of those, uh, you know, right. you need to get out there and start to identify folks, uh, you know, that are out there that are in the industry, um, you know, and, and just look around and, ha and have your elevator pitch. Yeah. Know your practice. This is what my book looks like in terms of client segmentation age. Do I have client concentration in terms of, you know, 5% or more of my revenue is sourced from these clients. This is my fee structure. Like put, put the time in to just develop that synopsis on your practice. And then the matrix of what you're looking for. So those conversations are really productive. So when you have that moment where you're like, you know what, this is a viable candidate who may be my successor. You're ready to move on it quickly. Because the reality of it is, once you've identified the successor, how many months does it take to close? Uh, like two, three months right. max. Yeah. It's it's not a long process to put the deal together. Um, you know, you can, it particularly, and this is once again a plug for if you're working with professionals that do this stuff regularly, it will not take very long for them to just, you know, pull everything together. Um, if, you know, and once again, why you should not use your brother-in-law for this, um, that will is the surest way to get this thing gummed up and blown up and screwed up. All right. Emotions. We call it the seven stages of deal grief. You know, so let's go through the emotional side of this whole process, which quite honestly, just like advisors making a transition, succession, the biggest hurdle to actually taking this leap forward is around your feelings. It's emotions. It is true. And it's, you know, I, I think from a self-awareness standpoint, let's just step back and acknowledge, like, what is one of the greatest things that we do for our clients? It's behavioral modification. It's talking them through their emotions. We see it on the investment side, right? When investors start to make, uh, you know, poor decisions based on their emotions. We see it when our clients retire, right? Like we see some clients come to this notion of, you know, oh, hey, like I can't wait to be done and out of here. And we also see clients that are like, ah, oh, God, like, I mean, I know I can retire right now, but like, what will I do with the rest of my life? Right. And I think in particular, you know, if you're a, an advisor, you know, you've built your practice, you own your book, um, you know, you're, you're, it's your family, right? It's, like we've, it, it is your family, yep. right? These clients are family. You've worked with them for 15 or 20 years. There's this years. notion at 30 years, mm -hmm. you, there's this notion of like, I don't want to retire. Like, I don't want to leave these people. And, you know, I would, I would highlight to you that you're not right. Like if you form that type of relationship with them, you will still get Christmas cards. You will still be in their lives in some way, shape or form, um, but you need to have that conversation with yourself to say, you know, what am I like, what is my best service, right? Like, how can I do my clients the best service? How can I do myself the best service? How can I think about retirement in the best way? Uh, because you know, things, we talk about this all the time, like things go bump in the night, right? Like we always plan for clients to live to 95. I think when we plan our own lives, we always plan for clients, you know, for ourselves to live happily ever after. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, 
particularly when you're in your 60s and 70s, things like memory care, uh, sorry, memory issues, things like, you know, just mental fitness, things like, you know, God forbid, death, uh, they happen. And you're doing your clients a disservice if you have gotten to this age and all of a sudden are leaving them in a position where, you know, uh, something happens to you and there is an abrupt handoff, right? It is it is the moral equivalent of dying without an estate plan or a will or my favorite, right? Like it is the moral equivalent of when the husband passes and the wife has absolutely no idea what the couple's financial picture looks like, right? Um, you know, somebody, your clients are left to sort of pick up the pieces of, well, what was my financial plan and this and that and the other. And, and you want to not do that disservice to your clients. So reality, you got to kind of come to that emotional decision that you're like, yes, it is time for me to retire. It is time for me to move on. You know, I've made a great living. I'm going to get paid well for my practice. You know, I should have enough if I've saved, if I practiced what I preach, I should have enough to retire. And, you know, it is, it is time for me to move off into the sunset. Couple things on that. More often than not, when we start the conversation, and you touched on earlier that average transition is 12 to 18 months, we start that conversation with in three years' time, I want to retire, or in five years' time, I want to retire. And and so th- let's just hit this like smack, you know, smash mouse right in the face on this one, which is the handoff is going to happen between 12 and 18 months. The clients are going to want to work with the new advisor. New assets are going to flow into the into the practice. New referrals are going to flow into the practice. So you come to the end of that 12 to 18 months and you've convinced yourself that you're going to work for three to five years. What do those years look like? If you've, if you've successfully advocated with the acquirer, I want to structure this deal over a three-year time frame or a five-year time frame. And And in their eagerness to get the deal done, to get it closed, to be able to assimilate your practice, you're like, all right, fine. We'll just, we'll just pay this guy. You know, we're going to let this woman hang around for the next couple of years. I mean, how do you deal with this? Uh, It's a really difficult. So this is for the acquirers that are out there. And then we'll talk about for the sellers. Um, For the acquirers that are out there, you do not want this option on the table. Um, So if... Uh, you know, if, if anything over sort of a three to five year, anything over really a three year transition period should really be discouraged. If the point here is to transition the clients to the new advisors, um, you can make the math work on, you know, a three year transition and you're still paying somebody sort of a nominal salary or something else like that. Like you can make the math of the acquisition work. Uh, but the reality is that you know every deal that I've seen that has a very long time frame, even the deals that have a short time frame, uh, the acquire the selling advisor changes their mind through the process of like, oh God, like I just I'm done. I don't want to be coming into the office anymore. I don't want to be doing this anymore. Um, you will see things despite our coaching on the like, you're not selling your business practices, you're just selling your client relationships. You will see new things that the acquirer does that make you mad for some reason, right? Like, you know, that they, they only do quarterly client calls. And I like to call my clients, you know, once every six weeks or whatever it is, right? Like, uh, and and you're gonna bristle about it, uh, and that's okay, right? Uh, but the longer the transition, it's kind of like um, 
I don't know. It's it's just one of those things where if you it, that that long transition, that long period of exit is just not something that anybody finds pleasant. Um, and your clients will be confused by it, honestly, right? Uh, you know, you you need to really wait. If it were me, if you if you sit down with yourself today and say, I want to retire three years from now, then your job right now is to go out and identify all of those different dating partners that are out there and talk to them and you know figure out what might be possible and what it might look like and this and that and the other, because that's going to take you 12 months to do, right? Six to 12 months to do. Um, and then once you've identified those individuals you know, or that individual, then you can start the negotiation process. If you are really thinking to yourself, I need to take some money off the table uh, and de-risk, but I want to continue to work for the next 10 years, uh, then I would look at you and say, uh, you know, you can go work for a captive and accomplish that, right? Um, I don't think any of us want to do that if you're already on the independent side. Um, or, uh, you know, you're living in a, in like there's, it's a fairy tale. Like no one is actually going to let you do that. Um, right. it's, it's just too long of a transition period. What you're really talking about there is a partnership agreement. Um, and you know, partnership agreements when we all know that there's a, you know, relatively short time frame to them are tough. Part of the ego is wrapped up in, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I have my licenses and sh and I'm about to sign this, this agreement. I'm going to sign, I'm going to sign my practice. I'm going to sell my practice and it's going to have a non-compete, non-solicit in it. Mm -hmm. Should, as a, as the, uh, as, as the selling advisor, should I expect to have to hang up my licenses and what are the terms of that and how does that wrap into just the emotional side of this deal? It varies case by case. Um, what I would tell acquirers is um, if you're really, really worried about it, um, you shouldn't do the deal, right? Like if you are really, really worried about the seller popping up, you know, a year or two later and starting to steal all of their clients back, um, you really shouldn't be doing a the deal in the first place. Um, you know, I, uh, there's a lesson I learned a long time ago, uh, right. The, the Indian parable about the tiger, right. Which is, you know, when the tiger rips your face off, it's not <laughs> your fault. It's not the tiger's fault. It's your fault for being around the tiger in the first place. Um, and so if you're, if you think you're in, <laughs> if you think you're about to do a deal with a tiger, you should probably turn and run the other direction. Uh, and that applies to the sellers as well. Like if you get to the point where you're like, there's no amount of legal paperwork that's going to protect you if somebody wants to screw you. Uh, that is just not the way that works. Uh, and just the legal fees alone. Anyway, um, surrendering your licenses is kind of the ultimate uh, in, uh, you know, it's the ultimate ask. Uh, it's the ultimate, like, yep, I know they're never coming back into the business again. Um if you're a seller and you're definite that you're like, yeah, I'm out of here, you might offer it and be like, yeah, non-compete, non-solicit, like I'll surrender my licenses, I don't care. And that may make the acquirer feel better about the deal. Um, if you're an acquirer, I'm not sure I would ask for it uh, because in asking for it, you may set off this sort of emotional firework display uh, that, that you may not want. 
Any other warning signs? You kind of touched on warning signs. Any other warning signs either the you know acquirer or the seller should be looking out for? I mean, we've touched on fit. We've touched on the tiger ripping your face off. Um, the acquirer should be excited about the possibility of acquiring your business. If they are not, that is a red flag. Uh, so they should be looking at it as, you know, this is a huge opportunity. Uh, you know, this is a great way for me to sort of double the size of my business. You know, the cash flows associated with this, it does not take very long to figure out that they are pretty darn accretive. Um, and you know, so you're, you, the acquirer should be excited about the business that they are acquiring. Um, you know, from a seller standpoint, so you, you know, as a seller, you want to meet somebody that, you know, that wants to date you, right? Like you, you, if they, if they act like they don't want to date you, you should probably <laughs> move on. Um, you know, if you're the acquirer, you know, the more, it looks like this individual is ready to sell and be done the better, right? So if 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 the seller is approaching you and saying, gosh, I really, you know, I want to be out of here in, you know, six, seven years, then, you know, politely have coffee and keep lines of communication open, but don't waste too much of your time because that that really just is indicative indicative of somebody who's not really willing to sell or not really ready to sell. Um, there are certain people in the industry that have gotten reputations. You will know them around town of, uh, you know, folks, serial daters, serial daters, right? Like I've got this practice and I really want to sell it. And then every deal blows up, uh, you know, at the 10 yard line or whatever it is. Don't waste your, if you're an acquirer, don't waste your time. And if you're a seller, don't be that guy <laughs> or yeah. Um, because you will eventually become non-dateable. Um, what else? I think, I mean, I think we covered it. I think that's it. Um, any other parting last words of wisdom, you know, look, uh, a lot of this industry deals with life in transition, right? Like, you know, whether it's transition from savings to retirement, whether it's estate planning and we're transitioning wealth from one generation to the next, whether it's, you know, transition in a career or transition in healthcare or whatever else it is. Um, and it, it always is surprising to me the sort of the cobbler has no shoes effect, um, you know, this is an industry where you do see people that just sort of work on and on forever. And I guess what I would just encourage you to think about is the service, you know, what type of service level are you providing to your clients in that particular analysis? You know, like there comes a time to hang them up. Uh, and the best time to do that is a time when you can still have two or three years to make that happen, uh, to find that individual um, or group of individuals that's going to buy you, um, to negotiate the term sheets and to, to organize a successful handoff of the client relationships. Um, and so really, you know, if, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, it's time to start the process, then, you know, I encourage you to go ahead and think about what that transition looks like. Um, I know being an FA is a great lifestyle, uh, but, uh, retirement, if you do it right, is even better. Um, so uh, on that mic drop, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Blueprint podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.rfgadvisory.com or schedule a call on our advisor resources page. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice. 
nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific training strategy. Information here may be provided in part by third-party sources. These sources are generally deemed to be reliable. However, neither our guest nor RFG advisory guarantee the accuracy of third-party sources. The views expressed here are those of our guest. They do not necessarily represent those of RFG advisory, its employees, or its clients. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by RFG advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, LLC, RFG Advisory or RFG, a registered investment advisor. Private client services and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place. RFG Advisory is an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of RFG by the Commission, nor does it indicate that RFG or any associated investment advisory representative has attained a particular level of skill or ability.